Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Lisa Chandler. On today's show, I'd like you to meet Sarah Quinn. Sarah is a clinical psychologist who wears a number of hats. She's in private practice, she lectures at ANU in Canberra, and serves as director for community and professional organizations. She's also a wife, a mum to two teenagers and a couple of dogs, and a recent graduate of a beekeeping course. Today, She's also a podcast host with a particular curiosity about recent research in trauma and PTSD. To that end, Sarah rang to speak with our guest, Dr. Christopher Lee. Chris is also a clinical psychologist who combines private clinical work with academic research. He's an associate professor at the University of Western Australia, where he conducts research, and he is also an active and gifted educator of his peers. Before entering private practice, Chris worked as a senior clinical psychologist for the Health Department of Western Australia for many years, and he continues to consult on treatment programs for personality disorders. Chris has been a guest on our show before. If you enjoyed this discussion, scroll back to 2020 where you'll find two episodes featuring Chris and I talking about trauma. But in the meantime, it's over to you, Sarah. Very pleased uh, to be here today to welcome Associate Professor Chris Lee here to Clinically Thinking, uh, the podcast here. It's a pleasure to have you here, Chris. Thanks, Sarah, and thanks for the invitation. Um, I, I first came across uh, Chris's body of work in the final stages of my PhD. We were talking earlier about um, I've studied psychology across three decades um, at three different universities and, and trauma was really a concept spoken of in terms of its relationship to the development of um, psychopathology but not really explicitly taught um, about the clinical interventions and how we manage uh, trauma treatment until that later stage of my PhD. So since then, I've actually been teaching um, masters of uh, professional psychology students and clinical psychology students about some of those major clinical interventions for trauma. And Chris is someone who's been at the forefront <laughs> of all of these changes in our understanding about how we best treat trauma presentations. So it's an absolute delight to have you here today, Chris. Um, so, very much. And I just, um, just as you're saying that, it just occurred to me that pretty much your experience of training was a similar to, to mine. So we spoke about right. trauma in our courses in terms of relevance to the etiology of presenting problems, mm. but we didn't actually get uh, training in trauma treatments. That only happened um, post our masters. So it's interesting that your students are uh, have got a heads up already when they've been exposed to trauma. Uh, Indeed, it is. It's it's amazing to see how things have changed, and I think that that's you know hopefully where our conversation will go today, um, because when I see um, there's something about um, teaching students coming through around the impact of trauma on our individuals that we see in our clinical rooms, and also that we are focused on in our research, that that lights up the room because people do understand how common. Um, trauma presentations yeah. are, um, even when they don't think that they're going to get a trauma presentation walking through the door, often that's sort of hiding in the background. Um, so it's, I think it's fascinating that we're only now starting to teach that as a, as a clinical, as part of our clinical teaching. 
yeah, it's part of the mainstream kind of, um, yeah, postgraduate training, et cetera, yeah. Indeed. And before I do that, I think uh, a lot of what I really enjoy about some podcasts when we're talking to experts in their field is actually learning about the person behind the academic and behind the researcher, Chris. So I'm going to deviate a little bit and and almost uh, do a quintessentially psychological thing and ask um, you a question as if you were lying on a couch. Um, so if I was a fly on the wall in your childhood home, what what would I be seeing around that room? Who would you be with? Uh, what would I be hearing? What would you be doing huh. in your childhood? Um, gee, uh, well, I think it would depend upon which kind of like childhood home. So like the first like nine years of my life was in um, sort of growing up in a state housing um, place and um Things were, were sort of different then to the next period of life where pretty much we travelled a lot of the world and were living in different um, um, places. But the, I don't know, the early period would be marked by my my parents were both great communicators. My dad particularly was good at uh, getting people to open up, uh, having a relationship with whoever it was that he was dealing with, uh, you know, that would um, work out for, for people. And my mother was um, just really good at, like, compassion and uh, empathy. So um, we had a, there was a lot of talking going on, frankly, mm-hmm. in, in our house. Um, the other thing that just, just is saying that and kind of the images that are coming back to me are also a lot around mealtimes. I'm thinking of, um, you know, my dad would celebrate every day if he got lamb chops, peas and boiled potatoes. Like that was just exciting. Beautiful. He'd be, you know, in rapture. And my mum was, you know, uh, escaped the, you know, World War II. She was Czechoslovakian, identifies Czechoslovakian. So she would get more excited if she got an opportunity to cook goulash or dumplings or sort of things like that. So there was uh, that kind of difference was pretty apparent, yeah, in their yeah. background. And Chris, what was your favourite meal? Did you have a preference? Uh, I did pretty much like goulash, you know, over lamb chops. Oh, um, and um, mum kind of won more over the years and there was more variety allowed. In <laughs> it, it sounds to me, uh, Chris, like your exposure to um, that compassion, that empathy and that that effective communication, what you do so well now as part of your, your day-to-day work was really instilled in you from a very early age. What was it that your parents did? What was their role uh, across the world? Well, uh, Mum worked as a secretary as a school and Dad mm-hmm. was uh, someone who, you know, uh, w- worked in a company, started off as like a um, sort of like an electrical kind of fitter sort of like thing, but then became uh, sales and then became an auditor and then sort of uh, management sort of thing so yeah so sort of different so definitely I guess the company they work for recognized these people skills and so mm. these promotions were you know according to that I think and what took you across the world um well he, in order to move into his different roles we you know we need to go and live a year in Sweden you know and kind of get some further technical development of things that that he wanted that were relevant to his job and uh, then, you know, Indonesia, other places as, as well. So, yeah, I spent a year in Sweden. I used to be able to speak Swedish, but don't test me on anything now. <laughs> That'll be for later on. Um, <laughs> so so tell me at what point, I mean, you were growing up in this environment where you were exposed to um, meaningful conversation over dinner and you've, you've described, you know, how that impacted you growing up and you've been exposed to different cultures. At what point did you decide or 
did you actually realise that you were making a decision to become a psychologist? I think it's probably, part of it was having a friend in high school who was, uh, she was very traumatised by an, an assault and it kind of like, and uh, it got me thinking a lot about, you know, the sorts of things that would help her, what could make a difference, uh, you know, trying to work out why that she was, that she was stuck. And then also fascinated by my, my mother who went through, you know, terrible traumatic things in escaping um, uh, basically persecution in, in World War II, and also that she actually seemed to cope from that and the kind of differences about that I thought was really interesting and I wanted to find out more about that. So that um, got me into psychology. Did Tell me the pathway then. So you've had these different exposures to understanding how you've your friend has managed with um, their exposure to trauma in very different ways to, to seeing how your mum managed um, her exposure to those really traumatic situations coming out of Czechoslovakia. Uh, were when you think about that pathway for you through to psychology, um, can you describe to me how it is that, that you turn that idea then into an actual profession? Um, I, I just went for a school. <laughs> I, I blame a school counsellor, really. So, like, you know, went in <laughs> and they said, uh, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't really know. You know, I'm kind of, I think I'm, uh, you know, I think I'd like to do something that involves communication skills because I think, mm-hmm. you know, I have a bit of a gift there. I would also like to, you know, do something that helps understand people and different sort of people. And they said, oh, this, this thing called psychology, I right? should probably look into that. So that's how it began. And then I pretty much went, uh, decided that about year 10 and just went for it. So, you know, did that undergraduate straight away into master's. Did that, um, got really sick of research at the end of master's after having to do two pieces, swear I would never do a research project ever again in my entire life. <laughs> and then 10 years later started a PhD. So, like and, and here you are. <laughs> uh, so so um, when I first came across um, your work was when I had, um, I, I work a lot with first responders and um through that work, um, I was originally trained in a prolonged um, exposure work and then heard about EMDR. And for me, hearing about this new, um, f- for me at the time, was this new treatment of EMDR, I didn't really understand what that actually meant. And, and I'm curious to hear from your perspective how you made those moves into EMDR training um, what that looked like for you, how your exposure for different therapies um, moved you into that particular research field, given research wasn't something that you naturally wanted to go back into after finishing your master's. Yeah, um, definitely. But it was kind of the reason that I did in the end. So, um, yeah, so same what you said. So sort of my default therapy for PTSD was a prolonged exposure uh, approach and um, uh I had read about EMDR and I thought it looked a bit interesting, but I, I got a phone call one day from this guy who said, um, look, you don't know me. My name's Don Heggie. I'm a World War II uh, veteran and I suffered from PTSD for, for many, many years. Um, he said I was a bomber um, pilot and, you know, the um, attitude of the Allies at the time was that they bombed civilian populations in Germany and his plane was shot down. His entire crew was killed and he was the only survivor. And he spent many years in a German prisoner of war camp and wouldn't have been treated well. But he said, look, I've had um, 
said, I've had lots of therapy, but more recently I flew myself over to America and had EMDR and it's actually changed my life. I haven't had a nightmare since that treatment. And he said, and I'm, you, see, you need to know I'm wealthy and I just want to fly one psychologist from each state of Australia to the US and I'll pay for your training and all that just on the provision that when you come back, if you like what you see, you tell other people about mm-hmm. the, the treatment. So, you know, that took me about a millisecond to say yes. That <laughs> I can imagine. And then I also asked, like, how did you get on to me? And he said, oh, well, I rang the APS and I talked to them and I asked them about who were the best, who's the best kind of like psychologist in Perth. So he said, so I rang her and she was busy, but she said you'd be okay. (laughs) You were the benefactor of someone else's um, inability to answer the phone. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, And what a fortunate place to be in. And so from your perspective then, Chris, was there was an original interest um, it, like you, it piqued your interest hearing about EMDR. What was your experience of actually learning EMDR over there in the States? Um, well, it, it was uh, it was incredible experience. So like when I even got the, the, the training, but also as part of what Don organised because he was a veteran, so he also um, organised us to, to tour other veteran hospitals in the US that were using EMDR and to speak to patients there. So you had the, what you were learning, the training, but it was really, I don't know, somehow grounding or, or very helpful to sit there and talk with a person about what was the sessions like. They'd all had previous treatments, you know, what was it like with this different sort of like treatment with that. And that's that kind of um, sparked my research interest. So my first, uh, what I wanted to do is, um, is you know, treat some people with prolonged exposure in a randomised controlled trial and treat them with EMDR and see kind of like what worked better and sort of like for whom. And so I wanted to do that project and that was then became the first paper in my PhD. Yeah, right. So um, when when you were completing that paper, were any of those initial findings surprising to you at the time? Uh, de- definitely, because you never know what you're actually going to sort of like find out. Found that um, there wasn't a huge amount of difference between the two treatments other than in the intrusive kind of recollections or nightmares. It was an advantage for EMDR in doing that over the prolonged exposure. So I learned that. Mm-hmm. The other thing I learned in like actually being rather than, you know, as a clinician, in, in private practice, you know that you get to choose whichever you therapy you think is best going to suit someone. In a randomized controlled trial, you're forced to do the therapy that the um, computer program tells you you have to do. So that was sort of um, uh, interesting. And I did learn from that that I preferred to do EMDR because there was less vicarious trauma. So in the prolonged exposure situation, having to go through first-person kind of present tense um, recounts of entire incidents, I don't necessarily think is always good for you as a therapist. And with EMDR, there's a lot of the content that you don't need to hear about, you don't have to access, and you still get these um, um, you know, really good outcomes. It's a really interesting point, actually. Um, I just want to uh, just ask you a few more questions around that is a lot of the work that um, – that I do is looking after a lot of other psychologists doing this very important work and um, given a lot of first responders don't necessarily come to see a psychologist because they um, have been exposed to trauma, they expect to see and experience a level of trauma within the work that they do. Usually what it is that they do come for is about 
you know, there's been an ultimatum from a partner or there are relationships are breaking down, (laughs) relationships are breaking down in the workplace or um, there's been something that's happened at work that they have, you know, really been unhappy with and that's the reason that they come and see um, a psychologist initially and we just have to very quickly scratch the surface and there's a level of desperation to to really process, you know, the, the challenges that they have managing these really strong emotions and managing some of those intrusive thoughts that they've been having that they thought had been quite neatly packaged away and put in a cupboard and the, the door had been closed. So it's it's an interesting um, understanding that we have that desperation that walks through into the room. We then feel equally as desperate to find a, a an intervention that will alleviate some of that distress quite quickly and that's just I think for them but also there's a level of um, desire to have that for ourselves as well because the, that is the work that we constantly do day to day is to hear about someone else's exposure to that trauma in the first person. So I like this idea of um, EMDR being for you less of an exposure to this vicarious trauma um, and for you moving then from EMDR that first study where did you go next after you had seen the benefits then of, of EMDR against prolonged exposure or compared with prolonged exposure? Where, where did you go next? The, the next point was to understand like what are the um, mechanisms uh, behind each of the treatments. So given that they did get fairly equivalent kind of like outcomes, the experience of providing them feels very different. And the theories to try and explain why they work also seemed uh, at odds. So it was about dissecting what actually is making the difference in the EMDR. And although it feels different, are there processes that are more related to one versus the other? And so the second sort of vein of the research was actually getting to a handle on that and being able to establish that the processes are different, they're not identical in each, which I think uh, a lot of people sort of, um, I found there was a lot of resistance to kind of like that idea, that they wanted to think that it, like, well, it's all just exposure kind of that, isn't, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. But if you actually, once you realise that the mechanisms behind it are quite different, it's sort of heartening for our patients because it means the mechanisms are different. Something that will work for one person may not work for the other or vice versa. So if you're trying your prolonged exposure and it falls over, well, you've got this other thing to to go back to. And certainly current International Society of Traumatic Stress guidelines say that people who do trauma work should be trained in more than one method so that if it does uh, fall over, you have something else to uh, to try. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like, you know, our psychiatric colleagues would say, well, you know, antidepressants have different mechanisms of action. So if one doesn't work, you might try one with a different mechanism of action in order to get uh, an alleviating effect for someone. So when, if you were to explain and justify then um, uh, the the advantages of EMDR over prolonged exposure. How would you describe those mechanisms of action to someone who a client who may be apprehensive about some, starting something like EMDR? As as a lot of our police officers and paramedics are, they think when someone's going to wave their fingers in front of me, they think, "What is this? <laughs> what is this hocus pocus?" So a lot of the justifications can actually they're, they're quite essential in creating that confidence and that comfort for a client in front of us. So we can be competent in it, um, but that confidence in being able to justify that to the client can often make the difference between them being willing to engage. In 
in that therapy and and not. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I'm just kind of like thinking some of the explanations that I get. With, if I'm trying to explain a procedure, I more have a, a like a hands-on explanation for a client sitting in a room that's actually quite different to what I think within a professional context. And so the professional theories are great when you kind of like understand the background of them, but not so kind of necessarily useful for everyday clients. So look, um, you know, if I, in a technical sense, I'd say that what happens with EMDR is that the um, eye movements actually degrade the vividness of the memory. And then once you get a change in the vividness of the memory, it's actually easy for the person to access other experiences in their life that are, if you like, antidotes to the meaning behind the trauma. So if you've got an experience of your head, let's take it, you know, of a sexual assault, and the meaning behind that is like, I'm not safe, all men are, are, are bastards. If that experience is very vivid and very emotional, it's just going to trump any other memory recall you can possibly want to do. If you can degrade how that's stored, though, clients in sessions sort of start to talk to you about, oh, I remember this high school teacher, you know, it was my sports teacher in year nine, and he was actually spent a lot of time with me. He was really nice. And so that's the kind of phenomenon that, that can occur. So I often think about or written about that EMDR is, you know, um, the eye movements kind of like facilitate a free association um, task. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of uh, a way of, uh, of describing it. For clients, I talk about um, that, look, talk about that the experiences that we're having now, like this conversation that I'm having with you, get stored really vividly in the mind originally. And mostly what happens, though, is by the next day I'll tell the client, you're not going to remember the details of what I look like so much, right? but you'll remember some important things from our session. That's how memory processing doesn't is supposed to go. And mostly that happens during what's called rapid eye movement sleep. And so we ask if they know about that and they usually know about it. And people are interested in rapid eye movement sleep and dreams. So you say your dreams are your natural way of trying to overcome things. But if an experience has been too traumatic, if it's been too arousing, you wake up from your rapid eye movement sleep and you have a nightmare and the memory stays frozen in that original form. And what happens is if we can focus on that with our eye movements, even in a waking um, state, your mind will be able to to put this in place. So it'll seem like a memory a long time ago rather than something you're continually reliving. So I don't know if you get a feel from that, but there's just that's just a more like hands-on experience, something that clients like to kind of hear. It makes sense to them. Um, and there's some kind of like evidence to support that. We do know that, you know, people with PTSD have greater disturbance in rapid eye movement sleep than any other stage. So you can talk about that. We do know following an EMDR session that people are likely to increase their amount of rapid eye movement sleep. So, you know, there's some data supporting that as a story, but it's kind of a story that has more impact necessarily than the science. Indeed. I think that it's nice to know those differences and I think that that's at that level of um, confidence that a clinician working with trauma really needs to have the ability to understand the theory behind why it is that we use these interventions and then also being able to explain them in a way that's um, readily accessible to the clients is, I mean, it's a very different skill, isn't it? Thank you for, for your um, demonstration of how to do that. I think it's really helpful um, for a lot of us um, hearing that directly from you. Um, 
I'm I'm curious about your experiences then for clients and maybe you've worked with some clinicians um, starting off with EMDR around that sense of um, stabilisation. And I know that there's a little controversy around yeah. um, the efficacy of stabilisation and whether or not it's effectively necessary. Um, actually, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to ask you that question first. What, what, is, what is the current controversy and, and where do you stand um, on, in that controversy at the minute? Um, so there are a lot of people that think that with complex forms of PTSD, so particularly PTSD um, that adults have now from experiences in childhood, that, that there is a, um, a view that people who have experienced that are too overwhelmed by a trauma-focused intervention that if you don't provide a sufficient amount of stabilisation, then they will drop out of treatment or worse, have adverse events, you know, require hospitalisation from the trauma processing. And that was the dominant position a decade ago about that. Um, it's uh, well, slightly over a decade ago, I would say. Now the whole therapeutic community has shifted. It's not the current position of many of the respected kind of like uh, guidelines committees. So, you know, Phoenix Australia kind of suggests that um, PTSD in adults from childhood experience, you should try a trauma-focused approach sort of first. Um, the research that we conducted showed that we took people with this childhood PTSD, we provided five minutes of stabilisation, then gave them 18 hours of a trauma-focused therapy. And a year later, 81% of them no longer had PTSD diagnoses and we didn't have any adverse events with that. That was, uh, you know, being involved in that training, you know, overseeing the treatment of 155 people mm. with complex PTSD, I'm pretty much in the camp that we're getting the balance right now and we were wrong a decade um, ago. That's not to say that every person who enters into your uh, practice should um, uh, doesn't need stabilisation. Mm. The difference for me is often about the extent to which they can describe the trauma and the extent to which they're thinking about it. So people with um, vague, you know, with traumas, and they talk about like vague sense of, you know, something in my mouth when I was six and they have, you know, terrible relationships and a poor sense of self and struggle to, you know, describe the phenomena that they're experiencing within their lives. They're people I wouldn't jump into with a trauma-focused approach. Um, often they're not even talking about PTSD symptoms. They don't even have them right, because mm. they might say, I only mm. think about it once a month, you know, and it's upsetting when I do but not the rest of the time. So they don't even make criteria for PTSD. Mm. So but somebody who comes to my office who talks about having been sexually abused as a child, who thinks about it every day and every day it's distressing, I'm going to jump in with EMDR way ahead of doing stabilisation because it's in their mind all the time. They're, for 30 years they've been dealing with the extent of this. They don't kind of need stabilisation. They just need to experience a relationship with their trauma that's different to what they have. It sounds like they're ready for that change, aren't they? They're de in fact desperate for that change. They're desperate for, for that change. And the quickest way I can get that is, is to mm. jump in. You know, with imagery or scripting or EMDR, either of those are going to make a, a difference. Mm. And, you know, new, some new good research from Holland that, like, you know, if you do a trauma focus in that one they did um, 
uh, people randomly assigned to trauma-focused treatment, followed by, uh, sorry, uh, stabilization followed by trauma-focused treatment, and then the other was just trauma-focused treatment. At the end of treatment, there was no difference in the two between the kind of outcomes. So the other people had an extra 16 hours of therapy with no beneficial difference. There's also no difference in dropout between the two treatments. So the idea that people are going to drop out didn't kind of happen. If anything, the dropout was slightly higher, not statistically, but higher in the people who were getting stabilisation. That's, that's another thing that we've written about before. The dropout rate from stabilisation is really high. It's 17%. So that's as high as it gets, you know, with prolonged exposure, for instance, if you're just mm-hmm. trying to do that. And what's your interpretation for the reasons for that dropout then in that stabilisation phase? Well, I think what happens for stabilisation is things don't happen fast enough or quick enough for people to actually want to stay in the treatment. You know, if you use something powerful to change a person's relationship to their memory, and, you know, a lot of that times that can happen after two or three sessions, they want to hang in for the treatment because they get a glimpse of what that life could be very different, you know, if, if they kept with this. Whereas if they just feel a little bit better because they've practiced an emotional regulation skill, it's not that. Um, it's not really going to engender a great degree of optimism for change. So I think you know, there's other reasons that people will drop out in both treatment. I'm going to be very, um, very open and honest about this, Chris. The, um, the first, I remember the first EMDR client I ever had um, was um, a client who had experienced um, a quite a recent traumatic event um, and was all consumed by it. Um, they were desperate not to be thinking about this event themselves and the impact of that on their their lives. Um, they were also equally as terrified about even starting to talk about it as well. And so I then noticed myself becoming quite um, hesitant then to ask them to start to talk about the event because of the fear of overwhelming them and and increasing that level of distress that I was was concerned that they didn't have the skills and strategies to manage that dysregulation. Have you have you heard that throughout some of the students that you've taught over over your years? Definitely. Can I can I ask you a question then? So like I understand that you've been doing it more kind of like since then. How how do you think your subsequent experiences would have that changed any way in terms of how you felt or how you, you would have dealt with that person should they have come along today? I yeah definitely (laughs) if I'm very honest with you definitely I think um I I think that came down to my own level of confidence in the therapy initially I think um my own initial skepticism around learning a new treatment um because again I I learned this at around the same time when there was that um sense of stabilization stabilization is effectively what we need to achieve first before we move into the next phase so i think that my own hesitancy perhaps played into the client's um apprehension so um knowing what i know now i think if i have that conviction and that level of confidence for them i think that makes a difference um so i Huge. think the relationship is is significant in that in their fact Oh, yeah, you could easily up the arousal mm. in the room by being anxious about where that kind of like is. And your experience, Sarah, I've got to say, is um, is is really common. So, like, in the IRAM project that I talked about before when we treated those 150-odd people, we also interviewed the patients and the therapists at the end and asked them what was it like to go straight into trauma treatments without any stabilisation. And um, 
because most of the therapists had, mm-hmm. you know, been doing trauma treatments mm-hmm. before of different sorts, and most of the patients, 70% of them, had had a previous trauma treatment. So it was interesting yes. to ask. And one of the things the therapist said is what I learned to do is just to just trust the process, just go with that, oh. right? And if you just kind of do that, you're going to get a good outcome. Um, so that's what they say they learned uh, from it. And the client said, um, what I learned from it is I'm a, I was a lot stronger than I thought I was. So it's it's interesting, I think, that as therapists, if we communicate that we have a sense of their resilience because you've been having flashbacks every day for the last 30 years, right? So I think you can handle us focusing yes, on this do. and you doing it. Effectively, your, we're both getting the same out of that, aren't we? We're both trusting in that process and they're trusting us and trusting that process as well. Um, you mentioned, you know, the that even, you know, someone who has been living with these intrusive thoughts, um, even if it has been for a short term but it's incredibly intense or whether or not it's, you know, for decades that they've been experiencing these symptoms, um, often there's that desire and that eagerness to have some reprieve from that level of distress. And and you mentioned there that, you know, within two, three sessions there might be um, a significant difference in how they're living their lives. Um, earlier we sort of mentioned about this sort of aha moment where there's been this sudden change and I'm, I'm really keen to hear some of the research that you've been doing recently around the, um, that almost the aha moment. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, look, it, it starts with um, if you if we put PTSD aside, if you look at people's recoveries from depression, some people just have a low, slow trajectory of, you know, the psychotherapy, the CBT, whatever they're doing, just there's this gradual, like, improvement. For many other people, there's kind of like a session where things just click, you know, and they might say, ah, oh, just when you told me that metaphor about so-and-so, I really got that. It's just my thoughts. They're not actually true. And they will refer to that session as a defining kind of like moment uh, in their um, treatment. And that happens, it's well documented to happen in OCD. It happens in depression. It happens, you know, when people are going through uh, trying to change their substance use. And it happens in PTSD as well. So we try to look at those sessions where people had this sudden symptom gain what what predicts that from happening? So we look we looked at some data from the IRAM study um, where people got either imagery or scripting in EMDR, and we found that none of the pre-treatment measures predicted this phenomenon of sudden gains. And if people were going to get it, they got it from what we did find is we collected weekly measures of, of people's sort of like, you know, on a visual analog scale, how much shame they were experiencing, how much arousal and that. And what we found predicted these sudden games very reliably was changes in shame. So if in the previous session the person had had a drop in shame, that next session they were going to talk about as getting a phenomenal insight, something that really changed um, for them. So whatever happened in that session, you had to have this one step back from the shame thing to be able to benefit from some process. Fascinating so, research. Um, so, I'm keen. Yeah, were there any were there any common themes in so. how it was that, that that shame started to dissipate? Right. It's hard. To re- it's hard research. Isn't it? No, I don't, we don't really have the data to kind of like look. That, that so um, that would be an interesting project. 
Yeah, that would be kind of like interesting to look to. But just on that sudden gain thing, like, have you, do, do you understand, like, as I'm talking about, it, did it make sense to you? Do you kind of like, I do, and I think the, the comment around shame is quite like interesting. Moment, uh-huh, when I think of the aha moments that I've had with clients in the room, there's, and because I, you know, see clients predominantly who have experienced trauma, I think the way that they've described it to me has been that they, they haven't seen themselves as as a safe space. So I think I think the the conversations that we've had and the processing that we've done has looked around how they understand themselves in the world, how the how they have seen themselves and talked about themselves um, in the world and to others. And there seems to be a shift quite quickly from seeing themselves as an unsafe place to seeing themselves as a safe place to be. So there's no longer this sense of trying to run away from who they are and what they've been through, but actually there's a level of acceptance that it it just happened. Um, And so I I don't know whether or not that's consistent with other people's aha moments, but uh, (laughs) um, it feels that there's a level of change around how they see themselves and the world around them and, and it's almost like an integrated way of seeing themselves in the world. Interesting. Mm. So, yeah, so mm. people wanting to um, embark on a research career. Chris, you mentioned um, before this idea of um, vicarious trauma and for you um, moving through to EMDR, that was a, a nice way to ensure that you were also looking after yourself as well as looking after the clients that you're working with. Um, I know that Psychology Week is coming up um, soon and, and the Australian Psychological Society is actually focusing now on uh, self-care for um, psychologists. Um, I'm really keen to understand what it is that you currently do um, for yourself to look after yourself in light of the work that you do every day. Okay, so um, key things that are important to me is um, the the regular exercise, going with a uh, going on a run with the dog on the beach is just a fantastic way to kind of um, de-stress. So I found that is uh, really useful. The other thing is um, I notice there's a lot of decompression rituals that happen like at the end of the day. I think it's I've been looking into this a bit actually really handy if your commute time it looks like an ideal commute time is 20 to 25 minutes okay so less than that it's not enough time to get your head out of one space and get into a space where you're going to connect with family and things like that so the rituals around commuting i think is important um uh, and then the last thing is that look sometimes i still get uh, experiences where i can feel overwhelmed by if you're doing kind of like a lot of trauma work. I have actually found that um, by doing EMDR on yourself, on those images that are flashing into your head is really useful for those more severe uh, moments. Um, But, you know, relationship-wise, my wife's a family lawyer, you see, so um, we share a lot of kind of uh, clients because of the... 
practices in a particular socioeconomic. I, I love that you shared that, Chris. So, I, I, I have worked a lot with lawyers so in the past, and we often um, talk about very similar personality styles going into our professions, um, but also the similar subject matter that we do work with on a day-to-day basis as well. Um, and and often when I talk about um, that decompression is something I talk to a lot of my uh, uh, lawyers who are clients about and how um, even that work-life balance is something that, that they find very difficult to achieve. But this de- decompression, I often share that, you know, it, it's I, I like to dance and sing really loudly mm. in my car, which can mm. be embarrassing when I stop at the traffic lights. But um, I think the benefit of actually having that decompression time after work and even to the point where um, a lot of my clients and, and even me as well doing the work that I do is that often I will get changed as soon as I get home to almost demarcate the end of the workday and, and move into my being at home day. It's a very in, it's a very interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Do you think that there are yeah. any dimensions of self care that we haven't really yeah. addressed Definitely. for psychologists thinking about you know looking after ourselves doing the work that we do? Um, I tell you one thing that comes and goes a little as psychologists is personal kind of therapy. There are like waves when it's uh, like really encouraged and seemed as, you know, should be compulsorily a part of any academic training. And then you go through a decade where it's seen as taboo and, you know, a violation of people's kind of like rights and things like that. So, um, you know, I, I think the, the personal therapy teaches you a lot about not just yourself, but your interactions with other people and very handy for becoming a better, better therapist. So I don't know, like you're currently teaching in an academic, if you were to say to, are you allowed to say to I don't know if you're allowed to, Chris, but um, I do. (laughs) You never say that to them? I work with a lot of psychologists in my day-to-day work as well and um, a lot of them are um, often look to me for that, what do you do um, to look after yourself? And I will often say that I do. Um, I move between having a fortnightly supervision to to talk about my own responses to the things that I'm hearing, um, and because I do I do feel like my own responses, as we were talking about in terms of my initial experiences of EMDR, if my own apprehensions and my own uh, confidence in doing the work that I'm doing is is waning, or if I'm starting to absorb some of the stories from my clients, then I think it's only professionally. Um, it's it's almost like an ethical imperative to to actually go and understand what that means for me, so that I can be there for myself and for, for my clients. So yes, I do share it. I don't know if I'm allowed to. So share it. Okay, okay. So you've you've kind of like put your hand up for yes. You think that's important. So why aren't we saying that to the master's students? Do we like if it? Is it, if it's kind of likely, you know, at some stage in your career, you're going to experience some kind of burnout or, you know, over-involvement with the clients and you need to kind of like stay, take a step back and there may be so therapy <laughs> there would right. be a really good idea to sort of like um, I, in well, advance think... decrease any <laughs> I've, I'm, and I've worked a lot with the, um, the ANU, the Australian National University in Canberra, yeah, and I think that they're, they're firm advocates in um, actually looking after their students and ensuring that they're well integrated with that care from mm-hmm. the get-go. So I, I, I've, you know, big shout-out to them to, the, to say that they're yeah, normalising right. that from the very beginning. Um, so I appreciate that. I, 
Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Um, okay. I... I wonder, I think if we normalise that from the beginning, as you were saying, I think that that's a helpful thing to do. I think that there's still a level of stigma attached to that as well, Chris, if I'm very honest. So um, I don't know if that's something that everybody would experience. Um, I know that, you know, when we think of authentic leadership, I think that being able to say as a a lecturer, um, this is something that I do and when I I talk about working with trauma, that's something that I would advocate for to say that if I need to understand who I am in the room to be able to understand and begin to understand someone else's experience. So if if we're role modelling that behaviour for the students coming through, at least they're seeing someone else who's experienced in that um, area and that field um, advocating for that role. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So good on the APS, right, for having a psychology week that's going to, like, focus on that. And going back to the the start of the interview, you talked about working with first responders who might be, like, a bit reluctant or a bit about shame, shame coming of treatment until they're given an ultimatum. There is a kind of, like, process there. It's good to hold up a mirror too, Mm. right? Mm. Thanks, Chris. Um, I, I know that there's so many areas that we could have spoken about more in terms of the, the research that you've done and the studies you've been talking about, and I've really only skimmed the surface with you today, and it sounds like there's so much more that we could talk about. Um, for those listeners um, who are um, definitely feeling the same way as I am, is that there's far more to know about what you've done and what you're going to do in the future. Where is it that they should um, access some of your studies and the research that you've been doing? Okay, so I... Uh... Um, I run a company called Psychology Training that does uh, training for therapists. If you go, if you go Psychology Training and Chris Lee, you'll get to the site. If you then click on to About Us, there's a link to the papers that um, uh, that are published, and then within that, all of the papers that are really talked about today, the Sudden Gains papers and the IRAM papers, would uh, people will find there. That's great. Thank you, Chris. And, and in terms of where to now for you, um, what are some of those projects that you're squirrelling away with your colleagues on at the minute and what are you hoping to achieve over the next, say, 12 months? Well, um, in sort of revisiting history, if you remember in the interview I said that I started my journey as a researcher wanting to understand, like, how does prolonged exposure compare to EMDR and which people might do better in prolonged exposure, which might do better in EMDR. Finally, several decades later, I'm so close to perhaps answering that question. So never really had the study set up well enough to do that, but believe that's happening now. So at the moment, where our aim is to treat 220 people with complex uh, PTSD, we've actually collected 190 so far, so just 30 to go. Once that's done, sometimes next year, we'll actually be able to look at which of 15 key variables uh, predicts who responds to what sort of treatment. So I might be incredibly optimistic, which you have to be sometimes <laughs> as a researcher, but I really think we'll know something this time next year. 
And wouldn't that be a beautiful bookend to a beautiful career (laughs) to be able to answer that question? And I think it'll have so many people behind you cheering you on because if we're able to understand what those predictors are, then we'll be in far better place to be able to to look after the clients that need our support the most um, when they walk through our doors. And um, I'm so grateful for your time today, Chris. Again, I know that there's so much more that I could have um, asked you today and I'm, I'm grateful for you sharing what you have. And I look forward to chatting to you again next year when you have some of that delightful research data to to explore a bit more today indeed thanks very much so thank you very much for your time pleasure yes you'll find more information about sarah and chris on the clinically thinking facebook page including links to the things they discussed today. You can follow us on Facebook, leave comments if you wish, and subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you'll find out about upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show.